0: Good evening. If you're joining us for the first time or you haven't been here in a while, you've actually picked a very good night to join us. We're starting a new series in the book of Ezra. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. And with that, let's open in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every book in this, your precious word. We know that you desire to speak to us through each and every verse, every chapter, every book. We know that you have something for each and every one of us that's individual and powerful, life-giving, because as we open our hearts to you, every portion of your word is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that we, men and women of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. Thoroughly equipped made ship shape so that we can be the people that you've called us to be. And so we pray to that end and this evening we desire that we would become more like you through the study of your word as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ezra is an interesting book. I've always enjoyed the books that uh, document the captivity and then shortly after the captivity during the, you might want to call it Persian occupation, but The Jews were much freer during the time of the Persians than they were during the time of the Babylonians or even the Greeks. And I think part of that was because the Persians were one of the few peoples at that time that were monotheistic. They actually believed there was one God, not the same God of the Jews, but because they were monotheistic, uh, they had a lot more in common with the Jews, whereas the Babylonians served many, many gods. The Greeks had a pantheon, the Romans had a pantheon, Uh, the Jews, uh, and uh, many of the uh, worshippers within Persia had their uh, focus on there being one god. There was Zoroastrianism and there were were a number of people who uh, really uh, didn't look at a large number of gods that they had in common. But because of that, I think, and because of God's hand of grace and mercy, uh, the Jews returned from their captivity after 70 years and it took place over a period of time and started uh, in around 538 BC when the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, issued an edict which we'll go through, which we covered last week in, in the last chapter of Second Chronicles, but also we'll cover, cover in the first chapter of Ezra. So the theme of this book is the return of the Jewish captivity. So we had just covered the captivity, and now we skip ahead a few years, and we now find ourselves talking about the Jews' return to their homeland. But if you were with us on Sunday mornings when we studied in the book of Daniel, then you know we covered a a large portion of what took place during that time of captivity as well. So over the last few months here at Calvary Chapel, we've been talking about this time period quite a bit. Now Ezra, Ezra was a priest. And Ezra, his name actually means help. Help, that is, he's a help, because it's a shortened form of the name Azariah, which means Yahweh or Jehovah has helped. So he was a person that liked to assist others. As a priest, that was a wonderful character attribute. Ezra was a priest and also a descendant of Aaron through Phineas, who returned to Israel Uh, from Babylon with Zerubbabel, which we'll talk some about in future studies. Actually, I think we'll talk a little bit about this evening. And so there were several captivities, or excuse me, several captivities. There were several captivities, but there were also several returns to the land of Israel after the captivity. And we'll get into that this evening. Uh, This man, Ezra, was a student of the scriptures. He was called the scribe, which meant that he not only was a priest, he was a man that studied the scriptures. And he was skilled in teaching the law. So his ancestor Phineas returned to help rebuild the temple. Years later, he finds himself uh, living in the area of Persia uh, at that time. And uh, he was a man who later really is responsible for compiling the histories that were contained in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So we've just finished a series of studies over many months in 1st and 2nd Chronicles and we believe it was Ezra that compiled that history. Now he didn't write it, he took other sources and put it together and presented it. So he's more of an editor or a compiler, but still his other works, which we believe are certainly the Book of Ezra and probably the Book of Nehemiah, are really more collections of information then books like some of the books we're, we're familiar with, maybe in the New Testament, where a writer is really presenting his or his own experience. So, so in that case, just think about it this way. He was a historian. He was a person that compiled information and presented it in a way that was meant to encourage people because he was involved in the encouraging of Israel and the kingdom of Judah as they returned to the promised land. So Jewish tradition also connects him with the collecting and editing of the entire Hebrew canon, that is the scriptures. He's believed to be the individual that took all of the books of the Old Testament and put them together, edited them, and compiled them. Now, certainly not the law. The law was already written down, the first five books of Moses, some of the other books as well. But what is believed to have happened is that Ezra the scribe, a specialist, if you will, an expert in the written word, looked at all the copies of the Word of God and put it together in a way that we now have it today, at least the Old Testament, compiled, edited it, and made it something that was uh, correct, first of all, and and also profitable in terms of presenting the Jewish history. So don't underestimate the impact that Ezra the priest has had on each and every one of us, certainly a man of God who was used mightily by God. Now, he lived in Persia. He was known to Artaxerxes after attaining a position of some standing at the royal court. So he was well-known He apparently persuaded the king to permit him to travel to Judah for the purpose of effecting religious reform. He was not there when the temple was rebuilt, but he was there years later bringing about religious reform. So he was a reformer, but he was an encourager. And we'll talk a lot about him, even in the book of Nehemiah. uh, We'll see he has a role to play during the time of Nehemiah the governor when they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. But for now... The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were probably originally one single composition. In fact, the Septuagint translators called them Esdras B to distinguish them from other apocryphal books that were named in the same way. So we see as we look at the textual history of this book, they were together all along, and they're together in our English Bibles. They're side by side. Uh, Later, when the Latin Vulgate was written or translated... Uh, they divided this in, these, these two books into Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible, uh, but also first and second Esdras in the Latin Vulgate. So we've seen these books together. They're really chapters one and two of the same book. Uh, but the writer of the 15th and 16th books of our English Bible is an anonymous compiler. That is, Ezra doesn't credit himself as doing the compiling, uh, and all of the information has come from others. Well, some of it came from Ezra because he lived through it. But it's almost certainly Ezra the priest who compiled the majority of the contents of these books. Now, Ezra had an important role. Among the exiles, the Israelites, that returned to Jerusalem, he led a group of Jewish exiles to return to their homeland in 458 uh, B.C. So time is going on. Uh, You had, remember, 538 B.C. You have Osiris' proclamation Nearly 100 years later, you have 458 B.C., and we'll cover that when Ezra, uh, when we get to Ezra chapters 7 through 10. But he also worked with Nehemiah to strengthen the commitment of the Jews to God's law. Great and mighty man. Uh, he recorded their history and the events that occurred among the exiles during his lifetime. And Ezra no doubt authored, as we talked about recently in our previous studies, the books of First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles were originally written as one unbroken book in Hebrew. So you might say 1 and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah are really his compilation of the histories of the Jews. Okay? And specifically the Kingdom of Judah. Uh, in fact, the last two verses of Second Chronicles are repeated in the first three verses of Ezra. So there's a seamless connection between those two books. And uh, the book of Ezra is a continuation of those books. Now, this shows that all four books are probably one volume, if you will, in the original version. But Ezra must have written these books after he arrived in Jerusalem in 458 B.C. No doubt he was able to get hold of the texts and the information in order to do this. And all of the, pur- or the purpose of all of his writing was to encourage reform, to encourage. Not to rebuke, to encourage, as we've seen in our previous studies. There are two sections of Ezra that are written in Aramaic. There are some portions of the book of Daniel that are written in Aramaic as well, which we talked about recently when we studied the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings. Because Aramaic was the international language of the day, in fact, Jesus spoke Aramaic, Uh, there were letters and decrees that were written in Aramaic, and Ezra simply copied them in Aramaic without translating them into Hebrew. So if you're ever playing Bible trivia and you get a question like, what are the three languages that the Bible's written in, you'll remember Aramaic. And uh, I, I, was at, I was listening to a very, very smart teacher one time, an apologist and very, very brighty. He, he said uh, the Bible was written in three languages with one word in Egyptian. And uh, I believe it was the name of Joseph. But, uh, so that's a little bit of trivia. You probably won't get that question in Bible trivia. But if you do, nobody wants to play Bible trivia with me. I tried it once with my family, they all got mad at me. Gee, I wonder why. Okay, well, the date, the style, the subject of this book is this. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were likely composed, again, within the intertestmental period, or early on. We guess that this was put together between 458 and 400 B.C., so roughly 400 years before Christ. After that, the scripture kind of goes silent during the intertestamental period until we get to the book of Matthew recording the events of Jesus's life. Well, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, all of these books record the return of the Jews to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. So those are good books to read at the same time as our studies in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. Ezra, and Nehemiah record the three phases. Remember, there were three phases of the captivity which we talked about. Well, now we're going to talk about the three phases of the Jewish return to Jerusalem, And they all took place between 538 and 444 B.C., so roughly over 100 years. Ezra 1 through 6, which we'll study over the next few weeks, records the return that was led by Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. That was in 538 B.C. Ezra was not a part of that. He wasn't alive. Uh, Then you have Ezra 7 through 10, which records the return led by Ezra, following the decree of Artaxerxes in 458 BC. But then, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 13 record the return led by Nehemiah following the decree of Artaxerxes in 444 BC. So, three phases of captivity, three phases of return from captivity, and we'll talk all about that within the context of these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. Much of the book of Ezra was written by Ezra himself, though the first chapter might actually have been written by Daniel and incorporated by Ezra, which is fascinating when you think about it. Well, the book falls naturally into two main divisions. As we've said, 1 through 6 record the first return of the Jews from captivity and the completion and the dedication of the temple, very important. Uh, And chapters 7 through 10 record the second return of the Jews from captivity and all of the reforms in Jerusalem after Ezra arrived. Okay, well, one of the things we want to do this evening is just look at chapters one and two. That's our introduction, but chapters one and two deal with the first return of the Jews from captivity. And we see in this chapter, chapter one, that God was faithful to his people Israel. And again, this book is meant to encourage. So God is faithful is an encouragement. God is faithful. Amen. Amen. And when we see God faithful to his people, that's true today. God is still very much faithful to his people. So as we study the return of the Jews, let's remember, though, that God is just as faithful to his people today. The Jews, yes, but to his children, his church. And I want you to remember that because we need to be encouraged today. If you're like me, you watch just a little bit of news and you start to think, where's God? You start to think, oh my goodness, is God faithful? What's happened you know, we see so much wickedness in our world, and we begin to think, well, maybe God has forsaken us. God has not forsaken his people. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? So uh, this book and myself here this evening, we're, we're here to be encouraged. And you know, Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And this, again, 538 B.C. Let's read verses 1 through 4. We read there, In the first year Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart. Notice this. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And again, we believe that Daniel may have been the one who actually put it into writing. So... This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, that is Jehovah, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and the people of any place where survivors may now be living— are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, it's not hard to imagine that if uh, the, one of the men serving in the court of Cyrus the Persian was Daniel. Uh, it's not hard to imagine Daniel drafting this uh, with the Lord moving the heart of Cyrus. Daniel's in a position to be able to put into writing... The things that God put in the heart of this emperor, Cyrus. So just imagine that. I mean, Daniel lived through the whole captivity. And now here he is, a very old man. He's been through everything, the lions and whatnot. And, you know, here it is the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, Maybe that had already taken place. No, No doubt, I believe it had. But you see this all happening. And God has his man in the court of the emperor. Daniel. We know what the book of Daniel told us. God put him there, and he represented the Jews before Cyrus for years after the Medo-Persians took over from the Babylonians. Ultimately, he died, but before he did, God used him mightily, a man of prayer, a man of faith, a godly man. And so he's God's inside man in the court of Cyrus the Persian. But you also have prophets that God was speaking through during the, the, the time. Jeremiah, certainly early on, and later as well, Ezekiel. Uh, you had other prophets. God continued to raise up prophets. But years later, God laid it upon the heart of Ezra to record that, that God moved it upon, uh, upon the heart of Cyrus, but also upon the heart of his people to return to Jerusalem. And as we look at this, we realize that the prophets confirmed that the Lord would call a man named Cyrus to issue this edict. They predicted it. In fact, we mentioned this last week, uh, Isaiah predicted Cyrus by name 150 years earlier in Isaiah 44 and 45. The only possibility, other than this being the word of God and God predicting that person by name 150 years in advance, the only other possibility is that it was written years later. But we know Isaiah the prophet. We know when he lived, and we know when he wrote. And so it's incredible. One of the most fascinating prophecies in the Bible, the prediction of Cyrus, 150 years before the edict. Uh, Jeremiah also predicted the timing, that it would be 70 years before this would happen. So we know exactly how long it would take. We know exactly who would issue the edict. And then you have Daniel, who's praying for the fulfillment of these prophecies the same year they come about and more than likely involved in bringing them into writing and allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem. So, fascinating. Well, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to issue this edict. Now, he may uh, have been influenced by Daniel, or God may have just touched his heart and told him what to do. We know God could speak to kings. He certainly spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and even to Belshazzar, for that matter. Now, portions of Cyrus' edict are recorded three times in Scripture, we studied one portion last week in Second Chronicles 36, verse 23, but in Ezra chapter 1, which we've just read, and also later on in Ezra chapter 6, we get a little bit more of that. The original edict was probably longer than any of them and contained all of them. These are just excerpts that are included to share with us what was taking place at that time. As I mentioned in opening, Cyrus was tolerant of all of the captive peoples now, living in Babylon. There were many peoples living in Babylon that had been relocated or taken into captivity. They did that to keep uh, certain peoples from revolting. By bringing them into Babylon, they could keep an eye on them and they didn't have to worry about them being trouble so far away. But he was particularly tolerant of the Jews. And the degree of favor shown in this edict just shows us that God is in control and that God is faithful the first portion of the edict is written here. We've read it already. In it, he recognized the Lord's providence in his reign over the earth. He recognized that God put him in that position. He recognized his responsibility and his calling to support the rebuilding of the Lord's temple. Remember, this isn't a Jew. This is a Persian. He acknowledged God's people Israel and God's city of Jerusalem. Called it that. And he encouraged any of the Jews that desired to return to their homeland in Judah to go there and to rebuild their temple. He acknowledged that the God of Israel was the God of Jerusalem. Amazing. And he commanded all of them to provide the resources necessary to rebuild the Lord's temple. So, you know, it's funny because you see the Jews are always so, well, they're always so encouraged by a world leader who will help them, who will work on their behalf. Uh, There was a time when Nebuchadnezzar did that for the Jews after he was converted. Uh, There was a time when Cyrus Cyrus the Persian did this, and we've been talking about it here. But recently with President Trump, you remember that Israel was just thrilled that he had their back, that he moved the embassy to Jerusalem and really was promoting the welfare of the Jews and the nation of Israel. And they sang his praises, and they still do, because here was a world leader who promoted the welfare of God's people. And I believe, and the scripture testifies to this, that when any nation promotes the welfare of God's people, they're blessed. You know, if you bless God's people, you will be blessed. Conversely, if you curse God's people, you will be cursed. And that is just the truth, and history bears that out. Now, the second portion of the edict, which we're not going to go over tonight, is in Ezra 6, verses 3 through 5. But there you'll find that he also commanded that the Lord's temple be rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstituted. Not just rebuild the temple, but reinstitute the sacrificial system. And he also directed the basic design of the temple and approved payment of the necessary expenses. And again, I think that's why you can look at that and say, yeah, Daniel had a hand in that. And he approved the return of the gold and silver articles that had been stolen from the temple by Nebuchadnezzar. They were in the treasury of the Babylonians, which was transferred to the Medo-Persians, and now they're being returned to the Jews. And we'll see that in just a minute. Well, the people of Israel prepared to return to their homeland in Judah, uh, in Judea to rebuild the temple, and we see that in verses 5 through 11. Let's read that. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, that would be their leaders, and the priests and the Levites, and everyone whose heart God had moved, notice, God had moved their hearts, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, and with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Now Cyrus King of Persia had brought them by uh, had, had brought I'm sorry, Cyrus King of Persia had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. Gold dishes thirty, silver dishes a thousand, silver pans twenty-nine, gold bowls thirty, matching silver bowls four hundred and ten other articles, one thousand. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver, and Shesh Bazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So Ezra does a great job as a scribe of accounting for all of that. Now, the leaders of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites responded to the call of God. See, God moved their heart, and they responded to God's call, just like Cyrus responded When God moved his heart. See, God has to move your heart. And God has to move the heart of our leaders. And we can only pray that God would move the heart of our leaders. Have you ever thought what would happen if one of our wicked leaders had a dream like Nebuchadnezzar? I pray pray tonight as they go to sleep, every one of them would have a dream so freaky and weird that they would start to cry out to God. That would be a good thing, wouldn't it? It's okay to pray like that. You know, we want God to move the hearts of our leaders. And if their heart is so callous that they refuse, then they're in God's hands. But I pray that God would move their hearts. Nothing would be better than that. Now, the Lord moved the heart of these leaders, and they led by example within the nation, Now, there were the other nine tribes that had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They're not mentioned here, but Judah, Benjamin, and Levi are. That is, those three tribes. The people of Israel responded to the call of God. And some of them prepared to go, while others provided the necessary resources. But they freely gave what they could to support the work that God had called them to. So some people went, some people gave. But they would need these articles to restore the sacrificial system. They needed these consecrated articles. It was vital that they had them returned to them by Cyrus's uh, edict. Now, the sacred articles rightfully belonged to the people of Israel. They were taken or stolen by the Babylonians. But Cyrus gave these articles to Sheshbazar, who was a descendant of Jehoiachin, we talked about recently, who was the exiled king of Judah. So he's the prince of Judah. He's the heir to the throne of Judah, even though they don't have a throne, and they never really did ever again, and they haven't, and they will in the future when Jesus returns. But until then, uh, the Jews have never really had uh, a king on the throne, but they still had a kingly line. Sheshbazar was the prince of Judah. Sheshbazar had been appointed governor by Cyrus, king of Persia. We'll get to that in chapter 5, verse 15, 14. And the Babylonians had maintained an, accurate, uh, maintained an accurate inventory of these sacred articles, good record keeping, because they were all still there. 5,400 articles of gold and silver given to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, the leader of the Jews. Sheshbazar ensure that these articles were delivered safely from Babylon to Jerusalem. That was his responsibility. And by the way, in Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 22, Jeremiah had predicted that these articles, taken by Nebuchadnezzar, would be returned. So many years later, another prophecy was fulfilled. Fascinating, really, when you think about it. Okay. Now we get to chapter 2 number of people listed here. We're not going to read through all the names, just like we didn't read through the names in 1st and 2nd Chronicles when we came across them. But it's important to know what's happening here. In verses 1 through verse 63, we're seeing not only that God was faithful to his people, we've already seen that in chapter 1. Remember, this is an encouraging word from Ezra, Uh, being recorded by Ezra. God was faithful to his people Israel, but the people of Israel were faithful to their God. And when God is faithful, God is always faithful, amen, and God's people are faithful to their God, good things happen. Really good things happen. So the people had a heart to return to God's promise. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. We read, Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Saraiah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Banah. Now, most of those names don't mean anything to us, but those are the leaders that had a heart to return to the land of Judea and also to the city of Jerusalem. These Jewish leaders had a heart for God. They had a heart for God's people. Now, Zerubbabel, who's mentioned, may have been Sheshbazar. Or he may have been Sheshbazar's nephew. We don't know for sure. But Sheshbazar may have been the Chaldean name for the prince of Judah uh, because both of these individuals are called governors, Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was actually a grandson of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So we're not sure if they were the same person or if they were relatives. But in either case, Zerubbabel is the governor as well. He becomes governor. Now, Yeshua, interesting, that's Jesus' name. Yeshua, it's another name, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in uh, in, in Hebrew. Yeshua was the son of Yasedak, the high priest of the Jews. So you have the high priest and the prince of Judah, leading the leaders of God's people and all of God's people to whom God had spoken and moved their hearts back to the city just as God had said he would. And I just want you to hold on to that thought because 70 years went by, and I'm sure there were some people who thought that God would not be faithful, but God was faithful. And, and listen, we've only been go- going through like two years of this very difficult time in our country two years they went through 70 and even more and god was still faithful i believe god will be faithful soon in a way that you know will bring joy to our hearts but the election is november let's hope for good things and good candidates being elected in our country who will promote the 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 way that we should live in our nation but we also have another election coming up two years after that. And let's pray that God is merciful in giving us a leader that at a minimum respects God and God's people. Because what we have now is demonic. That's okay. Because God is still in control. Can I hear an amen? Two years. We've been through two really difficult years. And they went through 70. And God is faithful. Just remember that. Be encouraged. Okay. Now, Nehemiah and Mordecai are mentioned here in this list. Don't get confused. That's not the Nehemiah we know and love or the Mordecai from the book of Esther. Uh, Those are just names that were common because this was way too early. They were not even born yet, so that didn't happen yet. But the Jews that followed these leaders had a heart for God and for his people, and they're listed for us in verses Uh, 3 through 63, it says the list of the men of the people of Israel. And it goes all the way through their names and the numbers of people who went with them. And we don't need to go through that. But as we go, as we look at that, remember, they were the leaders in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. These were the most influential leaders in the nation. They were priests, Levites, singers and gatekeepers and temple servants. They're mentioned in verses 36 through 58. But then you get to a list in verse 59 through verse 63 of undocumented individuals. And I find that interesting uh, because that's how we refer to people who came into our nation illegally. We call them undocumented. So there were those who couldn't prove, because they didn't have the genealogical records, they couldn't prove that they were Levites. They couldn't prove that they were priests. They couldn't prove their heritage. Not yet. Because after the captivity, many records were destroyed. Things were burned. They, they didn't have a record of their genealogies. And so these men are mentioned in verses 59 through 63. I'll read what it says there of chapter 2. It says in 59, The following came up from the towns of Telmela, Telharsha, Kerab, Aden, and Immer. But they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. They have no documentation that they're even Jews. But they know they are, but they really can't prove it. Well, the descendants of Delaiah, Tobiah, and Nakota, um, and from among the priests, the descendants of Hobaiah, Hakkas, Barzillai, a man who had married a daughter of Barzillai the Gilead, who was a very... Uh, well-known guy, and and was called by that name, Uh, they, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood, because you had to be able to prove that you were a priest and descended from Aaron, and they were excluded as unclean. But notice, the governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until, notice until, there was a priest ministering with Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360 beside their 7,337 men servants and maid servants. And they also had 200 men and women singers. And they had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Wow, that's a lot. But that's how they moved everybody there. Uh, You you know, today we have moving vans. Uh, They had donkeys and mules and other animals to pull carts. So as we look at this, these undocumented men and women, no proof of their ancestry. You might say that they really, they would have been excluded indefinitely except for something that was mentioned there. They were only temporarily temporarily excluded from the service of God until God confirmed their ancestry. Now, how would God do that? Now, this is one of those things... I probably shouldn't mention it because once I do, you're going to have more questions than answers because I have more questions than answers. The high priest would minister with the urim and the thummim. And with the urim and the thummim, they could confirm their ancestry. It's mentioned in Exodus 28 and verse 30. It's mentioned in other portions of Scripture. So the high priest wore a breastpiece of decision, it was called, which held the urim and the thummim in the pocket. There was a little pocket there. Now, the words in Hebrew mean lights and perfection. That may be an indication to how they worked, but we simply do not know. Lights and perfection. One thing, a light guides you, and perfection sort of describes that it guides you perfectly but we're only guessing at what these were and how they worked. We simply do not know. There are very few mysteries that you can read about in the Bible that, that intrigue you. You know what I mean? Movies have been made about, like, where's the lost Ark of the Covenant, but no one really talks about the Urm and the Thummim. We just don't know much about it. I've heard all kinds of guesses, but that's all they are. It's just speculation. No one knows exactly what they were or precisely how they worked, we only know that in cases where they didn't have the written word, the urim and the thummim were used by the high priest to discern God's will. Now, wouldn't you like to have whatever that is, the lights and the perfection? Wouldn't you like to have one of those? You know, send away, they have it on Amazon, you, you, know, you put it in your cart and they send it to you. And now you, never, you don't need to ask your pastor any more questions because you just, you need to make a decision, you know, Oh, is he the one? Is she the one? You go to your urim and the thummim, because the Bible doesn't tell you. So wherever the Bible is silent, you just go to the urim and the thummim, and you know what? Right away, lights in perfection, you know exactly what to do. Kind of like a magic eight ball. I used to joke around when I did young adults ministry because I was in the toy store one time, and I was familiar with the magic eight ball. You know, you guys remember the magic eight ball? You shake it, and you ask it a question. So silly, so stupid. Don't buy one. I think they still make this. But then I saw there was a pink one called the magic date ball. And it was specifically geared toward asking questions about whether or not you should date someone. A novelty gift, obviously. Kind of silly, right? The magic eight ball, the magic date ball. I suggest you stay far away from anything like that. Satan could probably use that against you. Wouldn't it be nice if we had an urm and a thumb and What? Wait a minute. What do these words mean? Lights. And perfection. Say that with me. Lights and perfection. Is there a principle in the urim and the thummim that perhaps we need to be reminded of? When the Word of God is silent, there is a light, a perfect light, that guides us. And he is called the Holy Spirit. You don't need the herb and the thummim anymore. You've got the Holy Spirit who is lights and perfection. He's perfect because he's God, and he's light because God is light. So you see, I think it's a hint, that's all it is, to how this must have worked. I know the Holy Spirit was probably involved. Because God is involved, and God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. How it worked, though, It's, you know, just don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because today we have the Holy Spirit. If we believe in Jesus, no one calls him Lord but by the Spirit. God has put, he's poured out his Holy Spirit in our hearts by faith. So you do have something so much better than the magic eight ball or the magic date ball or the Urim and the Thummim. You have God the Holy Spirit to guide you and lead you when the word of God is silent. So questions like, oh, is he the one? Is she the one? That's a question for the Holy Spirit. Should I take the job? Should I go to school? Those are the kinds of questions that you're not going to find in God's word. Although God may use his word to speak to you, it's going to be the Holy Spirit working through God's word to reach your heart. Can I hear an amen? So you know the most important thing about the Urim and Thummim, but you just don't know how it works. Wait a minute. I don't know how God works either. I don't know how the Holy Spirit speaks to me. I can't tell you how. I just know that he does. Can I hear an amen? So it really is the same thing. So get over it. You're not going to know everything, but you know God. And if you know God, God knows you, and God is faithful, and God will lead you and direct you. He will guide your steps. He will direct your heart along the path he's called you to walk. Amen? Convince me. Amen? Amen. So that's a really practical lesson this evening. So... All of these men who are listed, you might think, well, why bother? Well, Ezra had a point. There was a a purpose in listing their names. But these men, they're now forgotten by mankind, but they're remembered by God for all eternity. Their names are in God's word. God does not forget. God is faithful. And then finally, in verses 64 through 70, we read, actually, we read 64 already. Those that returned to Judea were just a small portion of all God's people in Babylon. Look, the people had a heart to invest in God's purpose, yes, but those that actually returned, 42,360, that's a very small number. Now, granted, it was probably younger people, and the young—the the adults would be counted, the children wouldn't, but, but still, there were a lot more Jews in Babylon, and I imagine a number of the elderly didn't make the trip, but still. Isn't it true, though, that when God moves upon the hearts of his people, there's a small number that respond? Would you agree with that statement? Not everyone responds. But you know, God doesn't need a lot of people to respond for his will to get done. God has those he has touched those he has called, those that he has touched their hearts and moved their hearts in his direction, in the direction he's calling them to go, right? Many are called, but few were chosen. But God gets his work done through his people as he wills. Most of the Jews were satisfied to make a financial contribution and stay safely at home. That's why when we do a missions trip, lots of people write checks, but they don't necessarily get on a plane. Well, the Jews didn't find it easy to leave Babylon now that they were wealthy. They were prosperous. And that oftentimes gets in the way of God working in and through our lives. The Lord hadn't called his people to stay in Babylon. He was calling them back to the promised land. And I understand that this was the advanced team. But sadly, you know, nearly 100 years later, there are still many, many Jews living in Babylon. Some never came back. And that's what this book is all about. Return of the captives. Well, some leaders not only returned to rebuild the temple, they also invested financially in God's work. So those that went also invested. Look at verses 68 uh, through 69. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, that is the place where the house of the Lord was, Mm -hmm. because the temple hadn't been rebuilt, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work, 61,000 drachmas, which was the currency of the day, of gold and 5,000 minas or minas of silver and 100 priestly garments. So they provided for the rebuilding of the temple, which they're about to begin. We're then told that the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. So they gave freely as they were led by the Lord to give, which is the only way anyone should ever give. The minute a leader pressures a person to give, they have violated a sacred trust between God and his people. There should never be a time where you're pressured to give, ever. Should give not under compulsion, but as the Lord leads. Each one should decide in his own heart what he should give. I mean, if you sow generously, you reap generously. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. But it's still your decision to give, which is why we don't receive offerings here at Calvary Chapel. That is, we don't pass the plate. We have a box in the back. You guys know that. And God more than adequately, much more than adequately, provides for our needs here at Calvary Chapel. But understand something, the minute there's even a little pressure or compulsion to give, you have violated a sacred trust between God and his people. Very important to know that. They gave freely. When you give freely, you're blessed. God freely blesses. They gave according to the resources that God had blessed them with. And they're giving well, their giving has now been forgotten by mankind, but it's recorded by God for all eternity. God knows what you give and how you give. Those returning to Judea were able to reclaim their property after many years. I mean, the Samaritans were probably very displeased at having to surrender the land that they had acquired, quote-unquote. People came back with the title deed to their land and these squatters had to move out. And you begin to see why the Jews and the Samaritans really didn't like each other very much. Their unexpected return to God's promise and purpose would have created many enemies. In fact, it did, and we'll see that in future studies. But understand, as the last principle I want to leave you with. Whenever we respond to God's call, whenever God moves upon our hearts and we respond to God's call, we can expect severe opposition from the enemy. Ezra experienced that. Joshua and Zerubbabel experienced it. Nehemiah experienced it. All those that respond to God's call will experience opposition. Jesus said it this way. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to experience what? Persecution, tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. Paul attested to that as well. So you have to decide whether or not you're going to serve God and pay the price lose your life and find it, or whether you're going to avoid persecution, keep silent, and maybe not have to pay the price for serving Jesus. I hope and I pray that each of us, every one of us, will remember the encouragement in God's word this evening and live our lives for him. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would continue to bless us here on Wednesday evenings as we study through Ezra and then Nehemiah, ultimately Esther. As we study these books, may you speak to our hearts. May you encourage us practically, not just history, not just information, but practical encouragement in your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.